You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who buys everything on my phone, albeit with Jim Bankoff's credit card, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play two interviews from Code Commerce, a live event Recode put on in New York City. It was a great event, and if you want to binge watch all the interviews right now, you can do that for free on Recode's YouTube page. Later in the show, you'll hear my colleague Jason Del Rey interviewing Instacart CEO Apoorva Mehta. But first, here's one of our favorites from this year's events, Jason talking to Square CFO Sarah Fryer. Enjoy. So I don't know if you caught John's talk yesterday, but um, he said, I think what gets people at Square out of bed in the morning are bakeries and coffee shops. (laughs) So, So I told him I would ask you that first question. But I think the real question is, it seems like... This is becoming a crowded space, reinventing payments in the physical world. How do you think, like, is there room for a Stripe and a Square and name, name the other five, six, ten competitors? So it's, first of all, it's a massive space. So omnichannel itself, uh, the ability to take your payment to actually enact commerce, um, whether it's online, offline, in a marketplace, on voice recognition, whether it's the lovely lady upstairs who was putting on some makeup for you, Jason. Sorry, uh, I feel like I need to bring that up. But a great example she told me I needed of, a two sole, times the amount. Yes. of a sole proprietor right, that needs payments all the way to some of the largest brands in the world, there's a ton of space. So what we've seen in the U.S. is today even 50% of businesses effectively don't take electronic payments. So there's about 21 million small to mid-sized businesses that are open for business to get on the electronic rails. We see the same thing in the UK. Um, About 1.7 trillion pounds of just revenue going across small business points of sale. So there's a lot of greenfield. And every business from that sole prop all the way up to the Walmarts of the world knows that Omnichannel is in their future, um, that they're going to have to be in all those places. And so what gets us up in the morning is making sure we can handle all that commerce. Okay, and so that means, you know, we've seen over the years um, in, in your public financial reports that the percentage of your business that comes from merchants that are, say, 250 or 500,000 yeah. a year in annual sales keeps growing and yeah. growing. What is the end goal there? Like, how big, how big are you going after in, ter- in terms of merchant size? So I don't know if we see a cap anymore. We think we can go to the biggest businesses in the world. 
And one of the ways we've done that in the last few years is to really open up the platform and to build a series of APIs that anyone can code to. So if you want to do something innovative at your point of sale, um, one example sometimes I use with analysts is the North Face. They want to do a pop-up at a ski resort where you know I've lost my glasses or I really need a hat, it's a little bit colder, I want those hand warmers. We want to make sure they can enact commerce right there at the lift. And what they don't want to do is recreate their whole back-end ERP system, supply chain, and so on. So in that case, they can just tug on an API from Square to help carry a payment. There are other examples where it might not always... And that pop-up's always... good enough for you. You're not trying to no, take that pop-up and would, have that an entry point. I would like their whole business. <laughs> um, we see businesses that do $100 million plus on Square today. So we're certainly not capped from a size perspective. And then, of course, it's not just about a payment. I think our learning in the last few years and the acquisition we did of Weebly, I think, has really reinforced this, is commerce is a continuum, right? It usually starts with discovery, help people find my product, find my business, help them get educated to know what to buy. Then you probably move into a shopping cart sort of scenario where a payment gets taken. Then they want to do fulfillment, and then maybe there's a return or a refund that ends it. There may even be things like reviews and so on. So we want to make sure that we're thinking about that whole continuum. And on the API piece, we offer not just a payment API, but things like customers or inventory or an instant deposit. Whatever the pieces of Square that are right for your business, we want to make sure we've exposed those and that you're able to do that code to our platform. So you mentioned Weebly quickly, which I'm going to describe it as content software, but also um, e-commerce software company as well. That was an acquisition. Yeah. How are you making these decisions on acquisition versus partner as you try to fill all the parts yeah. of the ecosystem? So as you can imagine at our scale, so you mentioned Omni, and we really look at three pieces of our business. Omni, banking services, and international. I'm sure you'll come to the latter two. But in every case, when we want to do something new, we think about build by partner. I think a big unlock for Square in the last probably three, four years now has been in a, will a willingness to build this open platform. Um, so there will be places where we do first party, and there'll be places where we do third party. So in the omnichannel vein, we have been working with Weebly, but also Wix, BigCommerce, GoDaddy, think about all of the website builders. And we do that because we recognize that our sellers want choice. And for some of them, one particular platform works better than another, and we don't want to tell them what they should do. We want to make sure it's open for them. So that, that wasn't always the way at Square, though, right? No, no, for sure. I mean, when I joined um, about six and a half years ago, we're not that old as a company. We're hitting nine years. But there was definitely a, we wanted to build it all end-to-end -end because we wanted to really control the experience. And if you think about Square in the early days, it was a beautiful experience where we really reinvented a kind of a nasty couldn't get on the system, you had to work with all these different vendors, and instead you came to Square, you got the reader, um, you were able to take the payment, you sent a digital receipt, and it was all for a single price. Felt really easy and transparent. But as we got bigger, to your point about how big can it go, yep. we've recognized that you know, uh, many sellers are gonna bring other pieces of that party to play themselves, and our goal is to work with the right partners to unlock for them. On the buy front, I mean, we haven't done a ton of acquisitions, frankly, as a company. Um, we'll always look, um, but I think our preference is still we want to make sure underneath that the data layer is cohesive. And a big part of our strength as a company has been the ability to, for example, take payment data in the point of sale, 
and offer small businesses access to capital through our lending product, or be able to take um, data that's running in our uh, digital receipt and turn that into a loyalty program. So the more we can keep cohesion of the data, the stronger the whole ecosystem gets. And so that's where when you do buy, you need to be careful that you can really integrate it in so that it's truly still a We've cohesive In terms ecosystem. of big acquisitions, besides Weebly, there was caviar, caviar when you were still yeah. a private company, right? Yeah. Uh, delivery, food delivery company. Yeah. And that's really about, lots that's of about I mean, lots of tuck-ins. We'll look for great technologists, great data scientists. We'll look all over the world for that. But that's much more of um, you know a talent acquisition vehicle rather than per se a bringing on a new business. Let's talk about the consumer side of your business for a while, which I've long been skeptical of, as <laughs> you know, and I think talk with We're Jack Dor- on you. <laughs> Jack Dorsey about as well. For a while, the question was, why even do consumer business? You've now, you've made some announcements about how, how big you, um, the cash service. Mm-hmm. I still want to call it Square Cash because <laughs> for people who don't know, it's, I yeah. still think it's confusing. Your Square, Square Cash services, which yeah. um, earlier this year, I think you said 7 million mm-hmm. monthly users, active, yeah. active users. Mm-hmm. I find people on the coast, which are a lot of people I talk to day to day, they're heavy Venmo users. And so I get from a ton of people, like, who are those seven million people? And I know you're asked this, but I'm going to ask you again. Who are, like who sure. are the people who are the yeah. the, the daily users of, of that service? So Cash App um, kind of shifted the branding. Hopefully, everyone here is utilizing Cash App today. Who you? So, we're, we're gonna we're gonna yeah, who uses the call. Cash App? That's actually not bad. There okay. you go. There's the beginning point of okay. my seven million monthly actives. Okay. So you have the, some work to do on this. The room. cash app. Yeah. Don't worry. By the time you all leave, because mm-hmm. I'm always hustling, you're all going to download it right now and try it out. Um, so cash app's premise really started out more with the underbanked, um, with a view that there are 30 million households in the United States that are unbanked or underbanked. Um, it's kind of shocking. The thing we take for granted, the ability to get access to a DDA, a demand deposit account they cannot get access to it. It's too expensive. They can't hold a minimum balance. They feel out of control when things like um, they go overdrawn by a dollar and they get charged $30. So Cash App really came about beginning with P2P, but we said this is a way to bring people up and on the system. So it's very analogous to what we did with Square in the beginning, where we work with those small businesses who never got up onto electronic rails. And so it started as a P2P app, But very quickly, we've shifted it to hold a balance, so it starts to feel more like an account. Um, With that balance, you get access to a card. Like a bank account, almost. Like a bank account, almost, yeah. Yeah. Um, It has a card associated with it today, so you get a beautiful debit debit card that you can take to an ATM. You can use anywhere that Visa is accepted. You can use it online and offline, and that's what people are doing. So in June, we saw $250 million dollars just on the, the cash app the phys- debit that. card, on physical the- and virtual together. But $250 million, it's about $3 billion annualized. And they're spending everywhere you'd expect. They spend at Walmart, they spend at McDonald's, they spend at Uber, they spend at Netflix. It's all the big places that spending's happening. So it's really not just about the coasts, although we love the coasts too, um, but we actually see this being used really across mainstream America. Geographically in the U.S., are there areas where you're heavily strong in this? So interestingly, our kind of real ground zero for it was Atlanta, Georgia, which speaks to a demographic that really needs to be served. But I think beyond that underbanked segment where we kind of began strategically, 
we've definitely seen now the rise of digital natives, like folks who want their, their banking type app or their financial app to kind of work with them, to work on the device that they're used to using every day, and to start just, we're just adding more and more utility to it as the app itself becomes more prolific. So the, so the one feature that has actually gotten me to use this physical <laughs> debit card that I don't gain any points for or anything um, is what you call boost, but yeah. it's essentially a, di a discount, a merchant, Loyalty well, partner. mostly merchant-specific discounts. Yeah. And right now, I think there's 10% off at Chipotle or Shake Shack, Whole Foods. Yeah. And I looked at that, and I'm like, those are big discounts. Who's yeah. f and it turns out right now, you guys are funding these discounts. Mm -hmm. So what, what's, how long can you do that for, and why are you funding these discounts sure. at the start? So it goes back to that comment about utility. You've onboarded through P2P, so you've sent me $100, and we wanna give you a reason to hold it sitting in that balance. So we gave you the card, we gave you the ability to do things like attach it to your routing numbers, so you could put your paycheck in there, we allow you to take it to an ATM and withdraw cold hard dollars if you want to. And with Boost, what we wanted to do was something completely unique. So if you have a debit card in the United States, it's unlikely you have any sort of loyalty program connected to it. But we wanted to give you in-the-moment savings because in our, in our mind, that is yet another draw to it. So it's an effectively a marketing expense for us. Um, we looked at where people are using it. So as I said, mainstream across all the brands you would expect. And so today you pick your Boost of choice. And, and you can be really nimble with it. So I was... Joking with, you can change uh, it every 12 hours and you, digitally, right? You can, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm a CFO at heart, so I'm cheap. So last weekend, I normally get a boost, a dollar off every coffee, because that's what I do first thing in the morning to get going. Um, but I was in Chipotle with my son, and I'm like, oh, oh, I haven't used my dollar today. I want to get my 10% off instead. And I could change it right there at the checkout. Through the app. And I could yeah. see it happen. That's the other thing, is most loyalty and rewards programs are things that happen you know, a month later when you get your monthly statement. And what's beautiful about how they've enacted in the app is you actually right there and then see the total amount you were getting charged go down as you get that 10% off. So for us, it's just yet another way to grow that platform from the you know, 7 million that you mentioned was as of the end of December. And the app has consistently been the number one finance app downloaded at the App Store or Google Play. And it's gotten as high as, I think, number four or five in free apps. So it's becoming, we want it to be a daily use case. Yeah, you had some celebrity tweet. That was tied to some celebrity tweet, but okay. But it's, 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 Inventive it's, it's up there. So where does this go long term? Mm -hmm. So you kind of nodded when I said it feels bank-like. Mm -hmm. What it, like... What does this look like a couple of years down the road? Sure. So, you know, as I said, we have three pillars to our strategy, omnichannel, banking services, and international. Um, and our goal on the banking services is, first of all, how do we get those 30 million, or at least there's about 18 million are truly underbanked? There's a bunch of unbanked, and we'd love to fix that too, but that's kind of an IDV pro verification problem. But if we can bring all those underbanked folks up and onto the system, we think that's just a natural rising tide. Um, you start combining it with what's going on on our seller side, um, and now you have some really interesting interplays. Although the note I would make is our goal is not that that becomes a, you know, a, a currency or an honest network, because I think we learned the lesson with Square Wallet where you don't have density. 
You actually need to open up the top of the funnel and allow a consumer to do whatever they would do, whether it's a square merchant or not. And so, so, they, so not that they have to find a square merchant exactly. to, make, to, yeah. to use the service. It's too limiting. In the end, people don't want to be told what to do with their money. They want to be able to make the choice they want to make. And so that's the goal with Cash App, is to keep it as wide as possible, but keep adding more and more utility for the consumer. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What happens with those funds that are sitting there? Mm -hmm. Today, I mean, they're effectively funds held on behalf of customers. You can see in our balance sheet, I think it was about... $209 million sitting on our balance sheet as of the end of June, so as of the end of Q2. So it's definitely a big balance. Um, and we're starting to think about, are there other things we could do for our customers there? You know, maybe help them think with, through savings. With, with that, with that, with that balance, yeah. yeah. Because how can we help them make their money work for them? So lots of ideas on the table, and the team is a really great team in terms of fast-paced experimentation. What are you, it sounded like you were going to say one of those ideas or ideas you're talking about. If I told you that, I'd have to... I thought you said the word savings. (laughs) There there could be things like savings, investment. We actually already allow people to purchase Bitcoin, for example, which we think of as allowing them access to an asset. So it was definitely probably jumping three steps ahead of what people might do the first with with an account. But we wanted to grab hold of a moment in time and really, as a payment innovator, understand crypto, understand what it would mean to move crypto um, from person to person. And so it's the fastest, easy way. If you've never bought a piece of a Bitcoin, Cash App is the way to do it. It's seconds, and it's in your account, and you can decide, am I holding it because I think it's going to go up, or... You're not, you're not promoting out. Bitcoin on my stage right now. No, okay. I'm just saying it's a utility <laughs> that you have. Um, <laughs> and you mentioned, I think, other in- types of investments that you think about offering. Absolutely. I think you know, anything you do today with an, a bank account, you should look to Cash App to begin to emulate more and more of that. Okay. Jump to the lending business for a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Square Capital is now, I don't know exactly how many years old, but I'm going to say... four years old. I was going to say three. Okay, four years old, lending to uh, merchants in your Mm -hmm. system. A lot of fintech companies now offering different lending services to their customers, even Stripe dabbling, testing it out. Um, All these companies have operated in a pretty good... All these services have operated in a pretty good economic climate. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you think about... 
Are you already starting to safeguard against what happens when our economy doesn't look like it? And what does that look like? So capital is probably one of my most favorite products because it gets back to what small businesses are traditionally not allowed access to, which is access to capital to grow. Um, We see this over and over again. Like Some of the stats show that 40% of small businesses won't even ask for a loan from a bank because they just believe they'll get turned down. So they don't even go out and look for a way to to invest in their business. Um, Capital today, we've done about $3 billion of lending. Our average loan size is about $6,000. So these are going out to small businesses. In terms of managing risk, we really thought about it in three ways. The first is um, we have access to your point of sale and to your payments data, which is an amazing signal when you want to understand the risk. And you know, from when Square was born, we thought about risk differently. So we've always been using machine learning, now deep learning, um, to make sure that as we use those signals, plus others, that we're making the right underwriting decision. So that's kind of rule one in terms of managing risk. The second piece is these are very short duration loans. Um, effectively, what we facilitate is about an eight to nine month loan. So to the extent the environment is changing, it allows us to be a lot more nimble. They're not like three, four, or five year term loans. The third thing, which originally, you know, I'd love to say we were super smart and we just saw it, but something we thought was a bug became a feature. So we actually allow people to match their repayment to how their business is trending. And that's because the way you repay is based off of every swipe. So if you have an amazing... Percentage percentage percentage, of daily sales. Percentage of daily sales. So if you have an amazing December, you'll pay back a lot. And if January you decide to go on vacation for two or three weeks, you pay back zero. And what that does is it allows businesses to actually smooth out to pay back alongside what their working capital is doing. And so most small businesses actually go out of business not because they didn't have the cash flow, but they just didn't have it at the time. And so by making that match, we think we keep our businesses much more healthy. And then the final piece for Square, so sitting in my chair of keeping Square safe, um, we ultimately true sale on those loans off our balance sheet to third-party investors. So Explain we, that to, for people who might not know. <laughs> so, yeah, so effectively, when we originate a loan um, with a seller, we package that up and we sell that on to third-party investors they love it because it's actually the default rates on Square Capital have been you know, approximately 4%. So this has been a great returning asset. And so they're getting to invest in something that normally wouldn't be open to them. And we get to take it away from our balance sheet. So it doesn't, it's not balance sheet risk to Square, ultimately. But do you see a shakeout? I mean, it's inevitable that, you know, whether it's... Yeah. One year, two year, five years. I mean, with any cycle, you've got to be watching the cycle. And so that's actually something I say all the time when I talk to investors. The great thing about machines is they're watching second by second. And so they are literally changing, you know, in a way the human eye cannot see. If the environment starts to get worse, the machine models or machine learning models will effectively start dropping, first of all, the size of loan that we're willing to facilitate. And then some people will start dropping below the hurdle. And we have seen this in microcosms, right? The U.S. broadly hasn't gone through a recession, but you've seen recessions in different smaller parts of the U.S., like the shale states, for example. So we can watch and actually see that the models are responding. Another good example is actually when weather happens, so hurricanes or whatever the heck is going on inside these windows right now, we could see that our capital models were kind of really kind of narrowing down what they would offer, and it's because 
over a two or three day period when perhaps stores were shuttered because of a hurricane, um, the capital model would think your business had just gotten dramatically worse. It was like a major recession had just happened to you in a three day period. And we, but it would take the models two, three, four weeks to actually recover, when in actual fact, a human being would say, oh, no, no, that's behind us. Now just go back to where you were. But you could actually see the models reacting in real time. So you know, I, I don't want to say that we're you know, perfect, but I do think the way we've approached risk as a company is a core competitive advantage. So whether it's on the payment side, whether it's in areas like instant deposit, in lending with Square Capital, right, I really do feel we've brought technology to bear. One more topic I want to get to. Sure. We're going to have questions um, in about three or four minutes. So if you have them, uh, line up. If you don't, think of some good ones. <laughs> you started an organization a couple of years, well, many years ago now called Ladies Who Launch, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which encourages and nurtures women in technology. Is that, um, a, is that? So not just technology. So think more Main Street businesses. Yep. So what I'm looking for is women who are just starting their own businesses. So it could be everyone from like Emily Glossier, who you had here yesterday, down oh, today. to She's or today. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was yesterday. So yeah. amazing woman yeah. entrepreneur. Um, I just, uh, we have an event coming up in St. Louis next week. So total blatant shout out for it. But I have women that have done everything from making the most amazing swimsuits, uh, to belts for kids, to um, technology companies that do things for maternal health, like you name it. Like women are amazingly entrepreneurial. But what I find and the reason behind the nonprofit is, A, community is really important. Um, all the stats show women do much better when they get peer mentorship. Second, education. Often they feel like they don't know how to build a business plan. Ooh or how to go about getting a loan. Um, in fact, capital, 56% of our loans go into women, and the background rate in the US is about 15%. Wow. That is how bad it is for a woman trying to get funded for her business. And then the third piece is just inspiration. So we've had everyone from like Joe Malone, spoke in London, um, the, the keynote speaker coming up in San Francisco is Hint Water, if you know Kara Golden. Just like women who've kind of been there, done that. But what I think is important is to know that while their journey might look straight up and to the right, it's actually, it looks more like this. And sometimes it's very down and not fun. And I think sharing those stories is really important for women to stay resilient and really do all that they can do. Specifically in the technology industry, mm -hmm. we look at the tops of companies. We look at we look at board board of directors makeup. Yep. You're you're now on the board of Walmart and also Slack, yep. um, which is an addiction at work that <laughs> is not always healthy. But we won't get into that. Look around. You know, a company like Amazon that I cover very closely. Of their top 18 executives, 17 are men, mm -hmm. white men. 17 are men. Like, I don't understand, like, that's embarrassing. I don't understand how in 2018, businesses, great global companies are still doing business this way. Like, what do you, I mean, what do you see Square's a bit different, right? Yeah. Why, it feels like not much progress over the last few years, despite the conversation. So sure. what do you think's happening? <laughs> so you're just gonna wind me up now. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, Square, we firmly believe you can't be what you can't see, and so, First of all, just for getting great talent into the organization, we want to make sure that we show diversity up and down the organization. I'm really proud that you know over half of the, actually I think it's over 60% of the organization reports into a woman at the, at the executive team level. And 
Total kudos to Jack, by the way, because that has to be a tone at the top. Second thing is like, how can you know what your customers want if you don't look anything like them? And so you need that divergent perspective happening, whether it's at your executive table, at your board table, as you do any sort of planning, right? Again, how do you push that into the organization? It's not just gender, it's every kind yeah. of form of diversity you can think of. Um, you know, it seems like it should be a business imperative, it's, right? It's, it is just sound business. In fact, again, every stat shows that companies, for example, that have more gender diversity of the executive team or gender diversity of the board are actually better for shareholder returns. Like, if I told you here's a single factor, why don't you go act on it? And yet, Fortune 500 CEOs, for example, where it should be 250 of them, because I can do basic math, um, is like 23 or something. It's gotten worse in the last um, five to 10 years. So there is definitely systemic bias. I think it's in all of us to figure out how do we take that systemic or that unconscious bias out of how we all act and react. And it's in all of us, but it's absolutely, you can train yourself to feel the bias, but then react in a different way to it. Um, and again, you know, I would kind of, you know, really just cajole and like, ask of senior leadership, whether it's boards, like, why aren't you doing more? Um, and it should be an embarrassment when you're not doing more. Yep. So, is, I mean, do you get answers when? <laughs> um, I'll try. I think you get, I'll a, lot, try. You get I'll a lot help. of platitudes. Yeah. And, like, yeah. I get a lot of people who explain to me how it's gotten better. And that drives me absolutely crazy. Do we have any questions from the audience? Otherwise, I see someone about to jump up. Please tell, you, uh, tell us who you are, please. Hi, I'm David Escamilla with Abdeal, and I'd like to know what the two major product innovations that serve merchants um, that have brought you the most joy over the past couple of years, and how you might uh, delight merchants in the future. Sure, that is a great question. Did you pay him? Um, I'd no, okay. but like I'd be happy to cash you later. Um, <laughs> I think. Um, I mean, okay, so I can answer it in two forms because you can probably hear in my voice, Square Capital is definitely right up there because I think it really broke free into small businesses, access to capital. Um, and then I think this coming together now of Omni is the thing that really makes me happy. But I'll tell you on a side note, I love just when I talk to the most teeny tiny businesses and they tell me the story of how you know, they were gonna miss that sale or they saw people walk away from their farmer's market stall and suddenly with Square, they feel like they're a you know, credentialized professional business. Um, and I was in San Francisco on Friday coming back from an event and there was a, a guy busking, it's actually on my Twitter feed, but I love that he had his cash handle and it said, you know, no cash, no problem. And so for even getting to a world where you can put something out there that's totally anonymized, right? I don't need to know his email address or his phone number, anything personal about him. I just know that he's cash tag, I can't even remember what his cash tag was, but that I could quickly send him like three, five bucks or whatever for his busking. Like those things give me joy because you start to see how everyone's getting accepted up onto this network that up to that point had kind of discriminated against them. Hi, Fazal Yamin from uh, GP Shopper. How do you think about the international market and how that fits into your plans to expand? Yeah, um, international is a great question. So a couple of things. This year, we stayed very focused on the core markets we were in. So US, Canada, Japan, Australia, UK, um, which is not a global footprint, right? It's a good start footprint, but not a global footprint yet. And the great thing about all those markets is we see the same hallmarks of 
lots of small businesses where there's a lot of greenfield. So before you even need to go kind of club competitors to death and like move on all the old stuff, there's just a lot of market development of helping small businesses understand that cash is expensive, right? Cash is, it tends to shrink, it tends to slide into people's pockets in a way it shouldn't. It costs you time because you've got to travel to and from the bank to put it in or take it out. It's usually because you think of it as something you have to keep really secure, it's often the business owner that is the person at the end of the day literally counting bills. Okay, if you think about it, it's the least value add thing you could or should be doing, and yet it's often what the most senior person in the business spends their time on. So we spend a lot of time doing market development in any country. The UK is super top of mind for us right now because of that stat that 50% of businesses don't accept payments. As we go into next year, there's kind of two other vectors as we think international. The first is Weebly, who we bought. So being an online-only business, Weebly is already 40% of revenue is coming from outside the US, and they're in 100-plus countries because they're effectively anywhere that online happens, they can be. And then cash is the other interesting one. So it's not a hardware-dependent business. They launched in the UK. It was a pretty fast launch given how young the Cash App business is, it's only three-ish years old. And so to already be in the UK, and then what was interesting is the minute we launched in the UK, the main question we got was, great, can I now send money from the UK to the US? Well, not yet, we can't do cross-border, but it's always really edifying when you hear your is customers. Is that something you could tackle eventually? I mean, absolutely, we could and should. I love when our customers are telling us what they need or want. Um, and think about real corridors like U.S. to Mexico, U.S. I mean, again, these are places where I think the, the current system really lets down the people most in need. So think about how much it costs you to send money from U.S. to Mexico, for example. And those are exactly the people that can't afford to spend $25 or $50 to send small amounts of money. So absolutely, a square unfolds over the next decade plus, like these are all areas that I think we can go innovate in and really kind of make it ultimately a much more fair system. What's the biggest thing Square isn't doing well today that you think to sort of fulfill the vision of, that the leadership team, including yourself, has for the company you need, you need to either do better or tackle over the next two years? Sure, so I would say international um, because I think to date, you know, I absolutely dream that the company's gonna have global impact and so when you're doing, when you start with more offline mode, so you need hardware, that is like a slow going, because you gotta get PCI compliance, regulatory compliance, you know, moving money with the banks compliance, right? There's a lot of impediments to fast motion, but I think we have an unlock, but we, we really need to lean in on that. And then I would say, the second part is awareness. Like, we actually do a lot, but most of what we run into is that particularly bigger businesses don't think of us that way. They think of us as like, oh yeah, no, I, I saw that when I saw the pop-up, or I saw that when I was in the farmer's market, and we need yep. to show them more and more examples of really big businesses that are utilizing Square and reinventing how they do commerce. You think, you'll, you think there's a day where public market retailers or e-commerce companies yeah. are using Square? I, I absolutely, I mean, I, I already see it happening, whether it's in you know, parts of their business, so we don't have the whole book of business, or, you know, like I said, we have merchants that do $100 million plus on Square already. I mean, those are pretty big businesses. I see a lot of like, things like um, franchises, like um, we have a, a car cleaning company up and down the West Coast that has you know, multiple, multiple locations. Even um, Blue Bottle Coffee, right? We, 
We love Blue Bottle because we love coffee at Square, but Blue Bottle is in the US and in Japan opening up new coffee shops all over the place, and they have a really vibrant wholesale business. And so it's on us to how do we take that whole book of business, because ultimately then the merchant has just a single view of what they sell, and that's really what the merchant cares about. Great, Sarah. I think we're Thanks, all out Jason. of time. Thanks Thank so you much. All. Thanks to Sarah Fryer for speaking at Code Commerce and to Jason Del Rey for conducting the interview. We're going to take a quick break now for a word from our sponsor. We'll be back after this to hear Jason's interview with Apurva Mehta, the CEO of Instacart. June 12, 2016. I know where I was. I was supposed to have a day off, and I was in my car driving into Brooklyn from New Jersey to pick up cupcakes for my daughter's first birthday party, and I get a text message. Amazon, the exact text message, Amazon fucking bought, excuse my language, Whole Foods. And you were where? So I I got that text message earlier. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Day day early? No, um, John Mackey actually called me. He told me that um, Amazon had decided to buy Whole Foods and um, that he wanted me to be one of the first people to know. And, and so, that was because you had a, a long-standing relationship with Whole Foods as your, your biggest business customer. So Whole Foods was one of our largest uh, nationwide partner. Uh, when we launched Instacart in 2012, it wasn't clear the way that groceries are going to come online. People were thinking that groceries were going to come online, but they didn't know exactly how this was going to happen. And Whole Foods bet on Instacart early. And they said, well, we believe that the way groceries are going to come online was not through warehouses, not through uh, building fulfillment centers everywhere in the world, but through using existing grocery stores. Uh, And so we brought a lot of the Whole Foods stores online and uh, at the same time proved the model so that we were able to bring a lot of other grocery stores online as well. What Um, part of the model are you saying you're proving? Just that there was demand or that it was actually economically sustainable? So um, uh, by last year, we had proven uh, both of those things, that there was a lot of demand and that uh, the model was sustainable. And so in the early days of Instacart, candidly, we were losing money on every single delivery. And we were growing really fast. Not a good combination, right? And so we had to learn a lot of things. One of the things that we had to learn was how to batch orders effectively. And we had to learn how to make sure that our labor model works. We had to make sure that we had economies of scale. None of those things were what we had in the early days. But over time, we built those things. And so one of the things that we've learned, for example, is that in every single market, as we continue to grow, as we have more volume, we build density. And with density, each delivery takes less and less time. One thing that we've learned is that each minute that we save in each delivery is 25 cents in gross margin. And so when we save that money, we can give that back to the customer so that it's cheaper for the customer to to make an order on Instacart. So those types of things are not something that we had learned. But now, um, of course, because we have uh, the logistics figured out and the the economy scale in most of the markets, um, today it's been over two years now that we've been gross margin positive. And so we'll we'll get back to the unit economics. Back to your the sad conversation with John Mackey for a yeah. second. So he tells so he tells you this, and you and you say, what? Well, there's not much to say at that point, right? Yeah. It, was a, it was probably a one minute call, um, uh, and um, uh, really uh, at that point we had the game plan, right? Instacart had the game plan, yep. and it wasn't just Instacart; the whole industry had the game plan. 
This was a shock to the whole industry. And at this point, you know, for the, the few weeks after that, everyone went silent. There was really- so you, did, you didn't immediately get inbound calls from big grocers who were scared. It took a couple of weeks. Yeah. It took a couple of weeks. But the six months after the conversation, six, say six months after the conversation, we signed a partnership with nearly every single important retailer in the United States and Canada. And those are test deal. Those are regional deals. Like, g walk me through a couple of those so we get a, sort of a sense of how how wide these deals are moving, whether they're tests or whether they're really long term bets. Of course. So, uh, of course, I won't be able to go into the contract itself, but I'll we, give you the we, high level. We have it up there actually projected. Oh, good, yeah. good, yeah. good. <laughs> um, is next, that the, the whole next year. one? Next year, yeah. So they're generally uh, between five and seven years, and. Um, uh, because we're today, we're delivering in over 4,000 cities in North America, and seven in 10 households in the United States can use Instacart and get their grocery delivered within one hour. And so the, the deals that we have with the retailers cover their whole network. So all the stores are coming online. Today, as you know, we're, we've announced that um, we're expanding our partnership with Aldi, where there, with the whole network of stores. We're, today, we're going to be able to deliver from 1,300 stores that Aldi has across the United States. So these are nationwide, long-term deals. And, that's, and those, when you're partnering with some of these big guys, they're keeping the, the customer on, in their own experiences, or this is all going through the Instacart, Instacart app, and they're, they're a choice among many? So the, what we built on Instacart is a marketplace. Customers pick a retailer and they shop within that retailer and they can get their grocery delivered from that store. And in the next shopping experience, if they want to buy from a different store, they can do that as well. So we've done that and, and of course we have over 300 retail partners across the country who, who uh, partner with us. Um, but what we've heard from retailers is that they want an experience on their own platforms as well, right? And so what we have done is we- They probably want that instead of your experience, no, long term? Well, uh, the, the thing is that it, it, it sort of works for both of us to have both of those experiences because the more volume that we have on Instacart, whether it's uh, through instacart.com or through the, the retail experience itself, we can drive more efficiencies. We can drive down the costs even more. And when we do that, we actually increase the adoption from the customers. And so retailers want the incrementality that they can get from Instacart's marketplace. And they also want to build their own brand through their own uh, .com experiences as well. So Whole Foods and Amazon, again. Over the last couple of months, we've seen Prime Now and Whole Foods Delivery expand. I think they're in several dozen U.S. cities now. Mm -hmm. I and some others reported on a five-year deal you had signed, I think about two and a half years ago maybe, with Whole Foods. So that means we're only halfway through that contract with Whole Foods. Is Amazon just and Whole Foods just breaking terms of that deal and you guys are just like, last thing we need is a lawsuit with Amazon. How are both things happening right now? So we're delivering from Whole Foods, as you know. I do. Uh, and, uh, and In some cases, like, push down to the basement, your workers. Well, look, I won't be able to speak to that. What I can tell you, right, and I think, let's, let, I, I, I think it's important to put these new stories into perspective. Yep. Whole Foods is about 1.5% of the overall grocery market, right? Most Americans do not shop at Whole Foods. The retailers that most Americans shop at are partners of Instacart. Now, 
I, you, you also have a subscription service of course. That, that's yes. an annual subscription for your, I would assume, your best customers. Yes. I would imagine the overlap between your best customers who can afford to spend, is it $149 a year? Right? $149 per year, yes. Yep, $149 a year. The overlap between that group of people who I'm assuming are core to, to your success right now and the demographics of a, of a grocer like Whole Foods, I would guess those are a lot closer than main, mainstream America. You know, um, if you look at subscriptions uh, like Spotify, like Netflix, like Amazon Prime itself, they're actually not that much more uh, 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 cheaper than Instacart's Express membership, right? And so what we see is that customers order on average once a week, right? So that's about $3 per delivery. That's cheaper than a gallon of gas. And what we see is as the economies of scale come in, as we have more and more delivery volume, we can drive the prices down as well. So we're seeing a lot of adoption uh, since last year. We have more than doubled uh, our volume. Whole Foods is not our, our largest partner. We're seeing more adoption for our existing mainstream conventional retailers like, uh, like Albertsons, like Aldi, for example, where you can get 99 cent milk. And what we also see is that our largest growing markets are not the markets where Whole Foods has a dominant share. Our largest growing markets are more closer to markets like Chattanooga and Anchorage and Fargo, where the household uh, population is under 100,000. Those are where more than half of our business comes from. And what do the fees in those markets look like? Are you subsidizing in order to make those more attractive for newer markets? It's the same fees. Same fees. Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk about fees in, in one second. but. Um, you didn't actually answer the question about how Whole, the, the Whole Foods deal and your relationship, uh, sorry, the Amazon Prime Now delivery and your relationship with Whole Foods are able to coexist without a contract being broken or being bought out of. I, I won't be able to go into the contract details. You, you know that, Jason. I won't be able to do that with any other retail partners as well. Okay, but in a hypothetical world where like people cannot understand how these things coexist, what might your answer be? Hmm. So, like, <laughs> um, well, look, we. Because I think you just like suing suing Amazon is just like a, a, a no one battle, and so they could, they may be very well just violating it. And well, look, I don't think anyone um, expected Amazon to buy Whole Foods. Yep. Right. And the contract was obviously written with that expectation not in mind. And so today we're delivering from Whole Foods and other parties may be delivering from Whole Foods as well. Yep. But as you know quite well, I won't be able to go into the details. Okay, well, we'll, we'll move on. Um, another topic you love, uh, you have a large network of both delivery mm -hmm. people. That's right. Um, sh I think what you call shoppers mm -hmm. in, in stores, and the relationship with them, mm -hmm. and especially as they've grown, it's been, I would say, up and down is probably yes. a diplomatic way to, That's to right. put it. Um, a lot of that is done with, uh, been, been caused by pay changes, how you pay them, how much, does a tip go to them, is a tip hidden in the app, is it accessible? Um, I'm not gonna go through all the iterations, but I've been somewhat critical in the past mm -hmm. of um, some of these pay changes and, and how hard it is to tip on, the, has been in the past to tip these people. I still get emails several times a week, mm -hmm. so it's a vocal group, right? 
Um, how, have you made mistakes in the past in terms of how either how the pay structure has been and sort of how core you think they are to the overall business? And if so, what are you doing about that? So first of all, uh, yes, we have made mistakes in the past. And we have debt with our shoppers. The reality is that we have 50,000 shoppers uh, on our platform, and this number is growing really, really fast. And so we need to do much, much better here. And we recognize that. And we're working on it. This is a core focus of our company. And the few things that we're doing, I'll just give you an example of this, is um, the first thing that we hear from our shoppers is that when something goes wrong in the store, in the app, in a, a, outside the customer's door, they need support. They need to be able to call in and make sure there's someone from Instacart who's there to help them. And so what we're doing is we're bringing in, uh, we're building an office in Atlanta, which is going to have 300 people just focused on making sure they're providing the greatest level of support. So we're doing that. We've also heard from our shoppers that they need way better technology that routes them uh, in the cities or in the stores uh, and make sure that they understand how to provide a great customer experience. And so we're expanding our engineering team to make that happen. We just brought in our VP of engineering to lead our shopper team. And before joining this team, this person had done over 100 hours as a shopper. So they know what's wrong and what's working. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, we have um, uh, a shopper council, which is a group of shoppers from across the country that we have brought together so that we're listening to the shoppers. We're hearing the feedback before things go wrong, things like the, the ones that you mentioned. We, we make sure they understand what features we're going to be shipping, and they help us get better on those and make sure that they are shaping the roadmaps that we are building as well. This is a key area of focus for Instacart, and we're working on it. A lot of feedback I get from uh, a lot of these people over the last couple of years has you know, mainly been around predictability of, That's or right. lack thereof, predictability mm -hmm. of income week to week, mm -hmm. day to day. Is the rate I'm getting today going to be gone in six months? Is that something they just have to deal with because it's the nature of the work? Well, candidly, this is an example for technology where it could have been much better. And I understand the predictability as well, and I've seen that happen uh, to our shoppers, and I, I get those emails from those shoppers as well. So I recognize those things. And I'll give you an example of the predictability and why that is actually difficult to do. The experience for a shopper when you're delivering in New York is actually quite different than the experience that uh, a shopper in, in Chattanooga has. The experience when you're delivering to a, an apartment building which has no elevators is quite different than what you have when you are uh, delivering to a single family home. When you're delivering a 20 pack of gum versus 20 pack of, of water, different experiences. How do you make sure there's predictability across those orders? That's something we're actively working on. But we, I, I, I want to be very candid. We're not going to, we're not going to uh, rush into this. We've done that before, and we haven't done it right. We are going to be slow, and we're going to be deliberate. This is an active area for us. And this is not going to be an area where a shopper can say to themselves, I'm going to make $500 every week, and that's going to be predictable, or this set amount, and budget accordingly. It doesn't seem like that's feasible with the way your model works. Well, uh, I think what we've seen is that uh, shoppers in our, our markets where we actually understand our supply and demand, and we've been in for some time, we actually understand how to give them that predictability much sooner. And because we're launching a lot of new markets, and we've seen how these markets actually mature, we now have that predictability earlier and earlier. And so we're, we hope 
that this gets better next year because of the work that the team's doing. On the technology, you're talking about, you know, tough problems to solve and technology solutions. Um, one I hear about from both sides is inventory. That's right. You're working with I don't know, dozens, hundreds of different partners, mm -hmm. different inventory systems. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people can find the right replacement, sometimes yeah. they don't. Like, it seems like a point where the experience can break on both sides, shopper and customer. Yeah. Is that, like, how do you, how do you solve the real-time inventory problem across different grocers um, in, in a way that works for everyone? Or is it solvable, I guess? Well, look, I mean, I think, we're, you know, first, we're doing billions of dollars in sales. We're delivering from 15,000 locations over 300 uh, retail chains in 4,000 cities. And that's millions of grocery items from retailers that do not have, uh, in, m in most cases, a great way to track inventory real time. And so the only way to solve this problem in a, in a great way is by making sure that the customer feels that the shopper is representing them really well. And so that is the area we're focused on, to make sure that we understand that... What, is, what does that mean practically? Yeah, so let, yeah. Me, let me tell you. So um, that means that, for example, if the, if the, the, the organic carrots are missing in, in, in the store, should we replace them with conventional carrots? Right? And if that preference is something that we understand, then our shoppers are going to be able to make better decisions to make that happen. And that is something that our team is actively working on. And yeah, where, where are you in that? Like, that where we're, are you in that process? Well, it's actually, um, uh, it's actually quite far. And uh, in terms of um, what we're seeing already is that the replacement satisfaction is something that we measure. And uh, if, if your order had replacements, how, how well did we do on those replacements? And um, that's something that is at its very, very high point right now. I won't be able to disclose the numbers, but we want to make sure that it gets continuously better and better. Service fees, tipping, you know, you made changes over time to where tipping is, where, what a service fee means, what it doesn't mean. I've had one high volume Instacart shopper tell me recently that the service fee feels like a donation. Like if the, the unit economics of the delivery work and you take a rev share, right, your majority of your revenue comes from taking a cut of each order from, from a grocer, is that right? Let me walk you yeah. through our unit economics. Would that be helpful? That'd be great. Okay, great. Let's do that. So. Um, on the revenue side of things, yeah. we get a fee from the customer, yep. right? Whether it's a subscription fee or, or a delivery fee. We also get revenue from our retail partners, right? It's a rev share on the sales that we do. Yep. We also have revenue from our advertisers, like Coca-Cola, P&G, Unilever, and many others. That's, that's our revenue, and our major focus on our costs is our labor costs, right? That is on the picking costs and on the delivery side of things. And um, we all- People. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. The, the, the costs associated with um, uh, the wages that we pay for the picking and the delivery. There's, of course, credit card transaction fees and other things. But the, the main is, the, is the, the cost associated with picking and delivery. That's our unit economics. And um, we've been gross margin positive for over two years now. First on gross margin positive. Yeah. To you, that, what is that Xing out? Yeah. Let, let, me, let me make it very clear. Right? When you have negative gross margins and you grow, Right? That means that you're burning more money, yeah. right? I get it. it, it well, no, no, no. I, I, a lot of people have um, gross margins where they're not linearly associated with this. But in our model, the more we grow, the more money we have for our business to, to be able to spend on research and development. And that's what we want to do. Now we're set up to grow more and more. So in that revenue explanation, I don't think you said, I, I, don't, I didn't hear a service fee. 
service fees, you're calling a customer fee. That's right. Okay, so what does that actually, like I get a lot of questions yeah. about what does that actually mean? Yeah. What does that go to? Is it going to shoppers? Is it going to other functions of the business? So uh, one of the things that we've noticed is that tips can only go to the last person who touched the order. Fundamentally, that's, it's legally required that that's the, the, the person who delivered your order. That person may not have actually picked your order, right? And that is something that we cannot actually give the tips to the person who picked your order. And so we have to collect some part of the revenue to make sure that overall, because we have thousands of people who are picking the groceries for you that you never see, right? We want to make sure that those people are compensated really well as well. That's why there's a service fee, and it's it's a five percent service fee for everyone. Okay, and that and we should expect after you know changes every eighteen months or, or so that this this will be a model that you hope will be well, consistent and sustainable. No, I, I, I think um, we've learned a lot, and and candidly, uh, this is uh, something that uh, this is a new technology that we're bringing to market. There's going to be things that we have to learn on. Yep. For example, we're making the unit economics work. This is a very hard business. No one's been able to figure out grocery delivery so far, right? Yep. Um, and so the, the pricing and the labor costs is something that we've learned on. And, and I'll be honest, I think we, we, we executed and communicated the service fee really poorly. So if, you, if, yes. if there are going to be changes, you know, we're going to have to make changes, that's, that's for sure. But Hopefully, we execute and communicate those things better. Got it. Long term, though, people who, who you know, in all parts of the country should expect that there will be some, you know, service fees on top of delivery fees uh, if they want grocery delivery over the next couple of years. Or do you, I mean, do you envision a world where you're, you're covering 100% of the U.S. and yeah. a way to do that is you're bringing fees way down? And well, um, so today um, we announced our partnership with Aldi where we're launching over 1,300 stores with them. And uh, the way we see it is that, you know, that is really cool because we can uh, give customers not only the convenience of getting your grocery delivered, but things like 99 cent milk, right, which you cannot get online, right? So it, it truly is something that we're really focused on over time as we have the economies of scale, right? As we have uh, some of the, the coupon revenue coming, which is, for example, today um, we have uh, one of the largest coupon platforms on the internet for groceries. Uh, we have thousands of, of uh, uh, coupons. These, CP, these are CPG right, brands. Like, that, like yeah. P&G, like Unilever, uh, like others who promote their products through coupons on Instacart. And um, now customers can get those savings, which in most cases they wouldn't even be able to get offline. They can get those savings on Instacart. And so we think that there's more and more room for improvement in pricing, and we're actively working on it as well. Um, you've, you've gained a lot of new partner, uh, big partner grocers over the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. There are two big ones out there that I think of that yeah. I'm curious about that aren't on the platform in the U.S., Walmart being one of them, Trader Joe's mm -hmm. being another one. You were early partners with Trader Joe's, and then, I don't know, there was some... We some, didn't have a partnership with Trader Joe's. Oh, you didn't? No. You just picked from their stores, mm -hmm. and they weren't happy about it. Got it. Um, <laughs> what do you think of those? the probability that you, know, you could work with either of those in the U.S.? 
So, uh, as you know, we recently launched Walmart Canada. Uh, we're very excited about that. Uh, we are partnering with Sam's Club in the, in the United States, which is obviously uh, a, Sam's, uh, a Walmart subsidiary. Um, we, the way we think about this is that we can bring incremental volume to them, and so we would love to partner with them at some point. But if you think what's about the, what's the holdout, like what what is for each of them, like what? with um, with Walmart and, and Trader Joe's. Yeah. Look, sometimes these things take time. The reality is this is a new model. This is an unproven model to them, uh, and and we want to make sure that we're continuing to build a relationship. And at some point, uh, hopefully, uh, they see the value in the incremental business that we can bring them. We have time for a couple of questions if anyone wants to line up. Otherwise, I'll keep going. Julia Naran with Business of Home. Um, Instacart has changed my life. I love it. I have one Thank question. You. Did you say her? <laughs> I'm a high volume shopper. Do you mark up the grocery, or does Whole Foods specifically mark up the groceries through Instacart platform as well compared to the ones in the store? That's, that's the first part of the question. There was a Reddit po post recently where a person took the Instacart um, app to the store and compared, and they were different. Um, so maybe that's just a Whole Foods thing, if it's even true at all. Um, second, do you see yourself potentially moving beyond groceries and becoming like an antidote to Amazon? Because I see you as sort of supporting local businesses and big box retail, and I feel like controlling the delivery time is an amazing ability. And um, I see that really, you know, competing with Amazon one day. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, being an Instacart customer. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, so look, the, the prices that we have on Instacart are set by the retailers. The retailers tell us exactly what the prices should be, and that's the prices that we reflect uh, for the customers. Um, and over, I think around 50% of the grocers have the same price as they have in store, uh, as they reflect on Instacart. And so um, in Whole Foods' case, I think it's the same prices in store, but you know, if it's not, I would love to look into it and, and bring it up to uh, Whole Foods' attention. But the, your second question, I, um, I think it's a very interesting point, and we've thought about that a lot. Um, should we go into other categories? And the place where we are is that right now we really want to focus on groceries. Groceries are so hard, and, and overall, it's nearly a trillion dollar market. It's an enormous space. And we really want to focus on it. We want to get this right. And we want to be the category leader in groceries. Today, I'll, I'll give you an example. 80% of the groceries that are bought in the United States are not bought at Walmart, are not bought at Whole Foods. They're bought at local retailers. Uh, they're regional retailers and national retailers that partner with Instacart. And we want to make sure that we are there to bring them online and allow them to deliver to their customer's door within one hour. In the back, Ravi, please. Yeah, Ravi Gupta, I'm from Goldman Sachs. Uh, quick question on uh, micro-fulfillment centers. There's been a lot of chatter uh, recently. What does that mean for your business and other aspects of it that you can leverage and sort of borrow? So today, if you look at um, the number of stores that exist, in the United States, in Canada, and in most of the developed world, you will see that there's a grocery store within 10 to 15 minutes of every household. That's definitely the case in, in America. And so now when you think about what is the best way to get the groceries to the customer's door, we think it is from those grocery stores. And that's why today we're delivering from 15,000 locations 
and that we think is only going to increase. And so we really want to focus on, on uh, delivering uh, great uh, experiences from the existing grocery stores. So th that's a no to the possibility of opening up own micro or any size fulfillment center? Look, we'd be very open to pilots like that, and we're going to consider those. Um, uh, but the, the reality is the scale that we're operating at and the scale that the, the overall grocery market operates at requires a solution for right now as well as for later. And right now, we want to be focused on the grocery stores. Hi. Yesterday, uh, Scott Galloway had a slide that showed sponsored products, searches, as it related to, like, grocery on Target and Walmart and Amazon and what they're doing there. Have you seen that uh, sponsored products as a viable source of incremental revenue on your search pages? So advertising revenue is something that is, I'd say, quite unappreciated uh, as a big as a source of revenue on Instacart. And we think that over time... So tell us how much it is. <laughs> um, um, in, in the long term, um, we think a substantial portion of our revenue really comes from advertisers. And, and, the, and the reason is, is, is actually quite simple. Um, if you look at um, the consumer packaged goods companies uh, like P&G and others, they're the largest advertisers in the world. They spend billions of dollars on TV and on Facebook and other channels. These advertising channels are mostly focused towards brand. They're not direct response. And that's because no one has built a direct response way of targeting those customers uh, for uh, consumer packaged goods. And so what we want to do is we want to build the AdWords for groceries. And that's something that we're actively working on. And over time, we, we, we believe that that's one of the main ways that we can actually drive uh, prices down for customers So what's the substantial well. part of your overall revenue in the future? Is that 20%? Is that 40%? It, it, it's, a, it's a big chunk. That 60 percent. <laughs> um, one, one quick question, and then we'll we'll do one here. Um, do you have candid conversations with grocers about whether they're in this for the long haul with you, or whether you know if grocery if delivery becomes so crucial mm -hmm. to them, you would think some of the big guys would decide I need to own this myself. Does that come up in the conversations you have with them? Well, let's look at that, right? Let's look at that structurally. So, um, from a customer standpoint, we want to make sure that. Uh, customers have a subscription service where they can shop from any of the grocery stores. Most Americans do not just shop at one grocery store. They actually split their basket with multiple grocery stores, right? And Instacart is a perfect way for them to do that, right? So that's number one. The second is, now if you think about um, what you would have to build as a, as, a, as, a, as a grocery store, because the grocery retailers today understand that this is critical. They need to get this right. And so they have to think about, well, you know, they have thousands of stores across the country, and they need a partner that can light all of them up overnight. Instacart is the best place to do that because we today cover, you know, 70% of the households. And hopefully soon, uh, in the next six months, we're going to be covering 80% of the households. No one else can do that. And it's harder than you think because you have to figure out the labor model in, in smaller markets like Chattanooga or, or, or Anchorage and, and all these markets. Yep. Getting that right, especially when you have unionized labor, is very difficult. Right? So, and it's also the e-commerce side of things, which is very difficult to, uh, to get right. You, uh, one of the things that we talked about was a replacement algorithm. Imagine having to build a replacement uh, engine from scratch at every single retailer. So we give those advantages to retailers, and we're building many, many more that we can bring to the retailers. Okay, what's well, super quick question, super quick answer. 
Gosh, okay, quick. Um, Tanya ThoughtWorks. Um, I was just curious about this idea of trust when it comes to groceries, yeah. because I'm a New Yorker. I order Pinkberry from down the street because I just don't want to go get it. But people that I know outside of this urban area always ask the question, how do you trust a grocer to deliver produce to you? Like, you can't yeah. smell the mangoes. Do you believe that that trust lies within you and Instacart, or is that something that you entrust on the partners that you have within the grocery stores? Really good question, and it's something that, uh, candidly, we think about a lot. Um, so, look, with any new technology that comes, sorry, this is going to be a little bit longer. Is that okay? Go for it. All right, great. Thank you. Any new technology that comes in, right, you have to remove the barriers for customers to adopt that technology. Right? The first barrier that we, we uh, removed was, well, most Americans couldn't get their groceries delivered, period. That was just not an option, right? And over the last couple of years, that's what we've done. Right? And so we, uh, we moved that barrier. Now comes the quality barrier. We want to be the grocery experts. We want to be able to pick groceries better than the customer can themselves. And today, many of our shoppers do that. They provide that service. I hear that from the customers all the time where they're like, well, I don't know how to pick the, uh, the ripe avocados, but the shopper picked the perfect ones. Right? And so we want to be able to do that. We want to scale that so that all of our shoppers can do that every single time. And that's something that we're, where this is a, a big priority for the company. Thanks again to Recode Senior Commerce Editor Jason Del Rey for conducting those interviews and to Sarah Fryer and Apoorva Mehta for joining him on stage. Once again, you can watch all the great interviews from Code Commerce right now, including a really fun one I did with the CEO of Chobani. Yes, that's the yogurt guy. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you just want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media. And also, I have a new podcast. It's called Pivot, and I host it with Scott Galloway from NYU. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Just search for Recode Media or Pivot in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.